Chapter 34 of Haworths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Clare. Haworths by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter 34 The Climax. The same night, Mr. Ryerley came home in a condition more muddled and disheveled than usual. He looked as if he had been hustled about and somewhat unceremoniously treated. He had lost his hat and was tremulous and excited. He came in without the trifling ceremony of opening the door. In fact, he fell up against it and ran in, and making an erratic dive at a chair, sat down. Granny Dixon, who had been dozing in her usual seat, was roused by the concussion and wakened and sat up, glaring excitedly. "'He's been at it again!' she shouted. "'At it again! He'll never have none of my brass to make way with. He's been at—' Mrs. Byerly turned upon her. "'Keep thy mouth shut,' she said. The command was effective in one sense, though not in another. Mrs. Dixon stopped in the midst of the word at, with her mouth wide open, and so sat for some seconds, with the aspect of an ancient beldam, ordinarily going by machinery, and suddenly having had her work stopped. She would probably have presented this appearance for the remainder of the evening, if Mrs. Byerly had not addressed her again. "'Shut thy mouth,' she said. The works were set temporarily in motion, and her countenance slowly resumed its natural lines. She appeared to settle down all over and sink, and become smaller, though, as she crouched nearer the fire, she had rather an evil look, which seemed to take its red glow into her confidence and secretly rage at it. "'What's thou been doin?' Mrs. Briarly demanded of her better half. "'Out with it!' Mr. Briarly had already fallen into his favorite position. He had placed an elbow upon each knee and carefully supported his disheveled head upon his hands. He had also already begun to shed tears, which dropped and made disproportionately large circles upon the pipe-clayed floor. "'I'm a misfortunate chap,' he said. "'I'm a misfortunate chap, Sarah Ann, as never had no luck.' "'What's thou been doin?' repeated Mrs. Briarly, with even greater sharpness than before. "'Out with it!' "'Nay,' said Mr. Briarly, "'that there's what I've getting myself in trouble with. I will not do it again.' "'There's summit I bear,' he proceeded mournfully, "'as goes again a man. "'He towed me not to say nout, and I did not mean to, "'but, with fresh pathos, "'there's summit I bear as wines, as wines a chap up. "'I'm not mitch o' the speaking loin, Sarah Ann, "'but afford I knowed it, I were a-making a speech, "'and when I bethout me and wanted to set down, "'they were bound to mack me, go on to the end, "'and when I would not, there were a good bit of public opinion expressed, and I did not stop to bid em good neat. There were too much a-going on. What were it all about? asked Mrs. Briarly. But Mr. Briarly's voice had been becoming gradually lower and lower, and his words more incoherent. He was sinking into slumber. When she repeated her question, he awakened with a violent start. I'm a misfortunate chap, he murmured, and I do not know. Scaped me, Sarah Ann, owing to misfortunes. "'Eh,' remarked Mrs. Briarly, regarding him with connubial irony, "'but thou art a gradely fool. "'I'd gee summit to see a gradelier un.' "'But he was so far gone by this time "'that there was no prospect of a clear solution "'of the cause of his excitement. "'And so she turned to Granny Dixon. "'It's time for thee to be a bed,' she shouted. "'Granny Dixon gave a sharp, stealthy move round "'and a sharp, stealthy glance up at her. "'I dunna want to go,' she quavered shrilly. 
Ah, but thou does, was the answer, and thou'rt going to. Get up, missus. And, singularly enough, Mrs. Dixon fumbled until she found her stick, and, gathering herself up and leaning upon it, made her rambling way out of the room, carrying her evil look with her. Bless us, Mrs. Briarly had said in confidence to a neighbor a few days before. I were never more feared to my life than when I had done it. And the owd besom sat there with her cap on one side and her breath gone. I did not know, but I'd put an een to her. I never should have touched her in the world if I had not been that there upset as I did not know what I were doing. I thought she'd be up and out in the street as soon as she'd get in her breath and happen call on the poor lease. And to think it's been the settling on her. It feared me to see it at the first, but I were not going to lose the chance, and the next day I give it to her up and down, trembling in my shoes all the time, I says. Thou may leave thy brass to who thou loikes, but thou'lt behave thy sen while thou stays here, or Sarah Ann Briarly'll see about it. So make up thy moind, and I've never had a bit of trouble with her from then till now. She can abide the soit of me, but she dare not go agin me for her life. The next day, Haworth went away on one of his mysterious journeys. To Leeds or Manchester, or perhaps London, said French, I don't know where. The day after was Saturday, and in the afternoon, Janie Briarly presented herself to Mrs. Murdoch at an early hour, and evidently with something on her mind. I mun get through with the cleaning and go wom soon, she said. The strikers is over from Malton and Dillop again. There's summit up among em. We do not know nought about it, she answered when further questioned. We only know they're here, and in an ill way about summit they fun out. Fayther, he's all upset, but he dare not say out for fear of the union. Mother thinks they've gotten summit again French. Does Mr. French know that? Mrs. Murdoch asked. He'll know it sooner now, if he does na, dryly. They'll no one stand back at telling him if they're in the humor, but he's liker to know than not. He's too feared on em not to be on the watch. It was plain enough before many hours had passed that some disturbance was on foot. The strikers gathered about the streets in groups, or lounged here or there sullenly. They were a worse-looking lot than they had been at the outset. Idleness and ill-feeling and dissipation had left their marks. Clothes were shabbier, faces more brutal, and habits plainly more vicious. At one o'clock, Mr. French disappeared from his room at the bank, no one knew exactly how or when. All the morning he had spent in vacillating between his desk and a window looking into the street. There was a rumor among the clerks that he had been seen vanishing through a side door leading into a deserted little back street. An hour later he appeared in the parlor in which his daughter sat. He was hot and flurried and out of breath. Those scoundrels are in the town again, he said, and there is no knowing what they are up to. It was an insane thing for Haworth to go away at such a time. By night there will be an uproar. If there is an uproar, said Miss French, they will come here. They know they can do nothing at the works. He is always ready for them there, and they are angrier with you than they are with him. There is no reason why they should be, French protested. I took no measures against them, heaven knows. I think, returned Rachel, that is the reason. You have been afraid of them. He colored to the roots of his hair. You are saying a deuced unpleasant thing, my dear, he broke forth. It is true, she answered. What would be the use in not saying it? He had no reply to make. The trouble was that he never had a reply to make to these deadly simple statements of hers. He began to walk up and down the room. 
The people we invited to dine with us, she said, will not come. They will hear what is going on and will be afraid. It is very stupid. I wonder, he faltered, if Murdoch will fail us. He never did before. No, she answered, he will not stay away. The afternoon dragged its unpleasant length along. As it passed, French found in every hour fresh cause for nervousness and excitement. The servant who had been out brought disagreeable enough tidings. The small police force of the town had its hands full in attending to its business of keeping order. "'If we had had time to send to Manchester for some assistance,' said Mr. French, "'that would have been reason enough for being attacked,' said Rachel. "'It would have shown them that we felt we needed protection.' "'We may need it before all is quiet again,' retorted her father. "'We may,' she answered, "'or we may not.' By night several arrests had been made, and there was a good deal of disorder in the town. A goodly quantity of beer had been drunk, and there had been a friendly fight or so among the strikers themselves. Rachel left her father in the drawing-room and went upstairs to prepare for dinner. When she returned an hour afterward, he turned to her with an impatient start. "'Why did you dress yourself in that manner?' he exclaimed. "'You said yourself our guests would not come.' "'It occurred to me,' she answered, "'that we might have visitors after all.' But it was as she had prophesied. The guests they had expected did not come. They were discreet and well-regulated elderly people who had lived long in the manufacturing districts and had passed through little unpleasantnesses before. They knew that under existing circumstances it would be wiser to remain at home than to run the risk of exposing themselves to spasmodic criticism and its results. But they had visitors. The dinner hour passed, and they were still alone. Even Murdoch had not come. A dead silence reigned in the room. French was trying to read and not succeeding very well. Miss French stood by the window looking out. It was a clear night, and the moon was at full. It was easy to see far up the road, upon whose whiteness the trees cast black shadows. She was looking up this road toward the town. She had been watching it steadily for some time. Once her father had turned to her restlessly, saying, "'Why do you stand there? You, you might be expecting something to happen.' She did not make any reply, and still retained her position. But about a half an hour afterward, she turned suddenly and spoke in a low, clear tone. If you are afraid, you had better go away, she said. They are coming. It was evident that she at least felt no alarm, though there was a thrill of excitement in her voice. Mr. French sprang up from his seat. They are coming, he echoed. Good God, what do you mean? It was not necessary that she should enter into an explanation. A clamor of voices in the road told its own story. There were shouts and riotous cries, which, in a moment more, were no longer outside the gates, but within them an uproarious crowd of men and boys poured into the garden, trampling the lawn and flower beds beneath their feet as they rushed and stumbled over them. "'Where is he?' they shouted. "'Bring the chap out, and let's tack a look at him. Bring him out!' French moved toward the door of the room, and then, checked by some recollection, turned back again. "'Good heaven,' he said. "'They are at their worst, and here we are utterly alone. Why did Haworth go away? Why?' His daughter interrupted him. There is no use in your staying, she said. It will do no good. You may go if you like. There is the back way. None of them are near it. I, I can't leave you here, he stammered. Haworth was mad. Why in heaven's name? There is no use asking why again, she replied. I cannot tell you. I think you had better go. Her icy coldness would have been a pretty hard thing to bear if he had been less terror-stricken. But he saw that the hand with which she held the window curtain was shaking. He did not know, however, that it was not shaking with fear, 
but with the power of the excitement which stirred her. It is scarcely possible that he would have left her, notwithstanding his panic, though for a second it nearly seemed that he had so far lost control as to be wavering. But as he stood, pale and breathless, there arose a fresh yell. "'Where is he? Bring him out! Murdoch, the American chap! We are combed to see him!' "'What's that?' he asked. "'Who is it they want?' "'Murdoch! Murdoch!' was shouted again. "'Let's hat a word with Murdoch. We lads has summit to say to him.' It is not I they want, he said. It is Murdoch. It is not I at all. She dashed the window curtain aside and turned on him. He was stunned by the mere sight of her face. Every drop of blood seemed driven from it. You were a coward, she cried, panting. A coward. It is a relief to you. He stood staring at her. A relief, he stammered. I, I don't understand you. What is the matter? She had recovered herself almost before he had begun to speak. It was over in a second. He had not had time to realize the situation before she was moving toward the window. They shall see me, she said. Let us see what they will have to say to me. He would have stopped her, but she did not pay the slightest attention to his exclamation. The window was a French one, opening upon a terrace. She flung it backward and stepped out and stood before the rioters. For a second there was not a sound. They had been expecting to see a man, perhaps French, perhaps Murdoch, perhaps even a representative of the small police force looking as if he felt himself one too many in the gathering, or not quite enough. And here was simply a tall young woman, and a dazzling dress of some rich white stuff, and with something sparkling upon her hands and arms, and in her high-dressed blonde hair. The moonlight struck full upon her, and she stood in it serene, and bore unmoved the stupid stare of all their eyes. It was she who spoke first, and then they knew her, and the spell which had held them dumb was broken. "'What do you want?' she demanded. "'I should like to hear.' Then they began to shout again. We want Murdoch, they said. We have summit to say to him. He is not here, she said. He has not been here. That's a lee, remarked a gentleman on the outskirts of the crowd. A domed un. She made no answer, and singularly enough, nobody laughed. Why do you want him, she said next. We want to hear about that contraption of his, as is going to make the mesters independent. He knows what we want him for. We've just been to his house and brocken the winders. He's getting wind on us coming, and he made off with the machine. He'll be here afore long, if he is not here now, and we're bound to see him. He'll be up to see thee, put in the gentleman on the outskirts, and I dunnot blame him. I'm glad I cool myself. Thou's worth a trip, and I'm a dillop chap, moind ya. She stood quite still as before, and let them look at her, to see what effect the words had produced. It seemed as if they had produced none. If you have come to see him, she said after a few seconds, you may go away again. He is not here. I know where he is, and you cannot reach him. If there has not been some blunder, he is far enough away. She told the lie without flinching in the least, and with a clever coolness which led her to think in a flash beforehand even of the clause which would save her dignity if he should chance to come in the midst of her words. If you want to break windows, she went on, break them here. They can be replaced afterward, and there is no one here to interfere with you. If you would like to vent your anger upon a woman, vent it upon me. I am not afraid of you. Look at me. She took half a step forward and presented herself to them, motionless. Not a fellow among them, but felt that she would not have stirred if they had rushed upon her bodily. The effect of her supreme beauty and the cold defiance, which had in it a touch of delicate insolence, was indescribable. This was not in accordance with her ideas of women of her class. They were used to seeing them discreetly keeping themselves in the shade in time of disorder. Here was one, one of the knobs, as they said, who flung their threats to the wind and scorned them. 
What they would have done when they recovered themselves is uncertain. The scale might have turned either way, but just in the intervening moment which would have decided it, there arose a tumult in their midst. A man pushed his way with mad haste through the crowd and sprang upon the terrace at her side amid yells and hoots from those who had guessed who he was. An instant later they all knew him, though his dress was disordered, his head was bare, and his whole face and figure seemed altered by his excitement. "'Dom him!' they yelled. "'There he is by—' "'I towed thee he'd come!' shouted the cynic. "'He did not get the telegraph, Vassis.' He turned on them, panting and white with rage. "'You devils!' he cried. "'You are here, too. Haven't you done enough? Isn't bullying and frightening two women enough for you that you must come here?' "'That's reet,' commented the cynic. "'Stand up for the young woman, Murdoch. "'I do it my sin, and I were on that soid. "'All is stand up for the sect.' "'Murdoch spoke to Rachel French. "'You must go in,' he said. "'There is no knowing what they will do.' "'I shall stay here,' she answered. "'She made an impatient gesture. "'She was shuddering from head to foot. "'Don't look or speak to me,' she said. "'You, you make me a coward.' "'They will stand at nothing,' he protested.' I will not turn my back upon them, she said. Let them do their worst. He turned to the crowd again. Her life itself was in danger, and he knew he could not move her. He was shuddering himself. Who is your leader, he said to the men. I suppose you have one. The man known as Foxy Gibbs responded to their cries of his name by pushing his way to the front. He was a big, resolute, hulking scamp who had never been known to do an honest day's work and was yet always in funds and at liberty to make incendiary speeches where beer and tobacco were plentiful. "'What do you want of me?' demanded Murdoch. "'Speak out.' The fellow was ready enough with his words, and forcible, too. "'We've heard tell a summit going on, and we're not going to stand,' he said. "'We've heard tell a chap at's contriving summit to do away with them as does the work now, and makes their bread by it.' We've heard as the mesters is priding their cells on it and laughing in their sleeves. We've heard tell as there's a chap mackin' what'll end in mischief, and you're the chap. Who told you? Never mind who. A fool let it out, and we were not in the humor to let it pass. We are going to sift the thing to the bottom. You're the chap as was named. What have you gotten to say? Just one thing, he answered. It's a lie from first to last, an accursed lie. Lee or not, we're going to smash the thing, whatever it is. We're no particular about the Lee. We'll make the thing safe first, and then settle about the Lee. Murdoch thrust his hands in his pockets, and eyed them with his first approach to his usual saying Freud. It's where you won't find it, he said. I've made sure of that. It was a mad speech to have made, but he had lost self-control and balance. He was too terribly conscious of Rachel French's perilous nearness to be in the mood to weigh his words. He saw his mistake in a second. There was a shout and a surging movement of the mob toward him, and Rachel French, with an indescribable swiftness, had thrown herself before him and was struck by a stone which came whizzing through the air. She staggered under the stroke, but stood upright in a breath's time. "'My God!' Murdoch cried out. "'They have struck you! They have struck you!' He was half mad with his anguish and horror. The sight of the little stream of blood which trickled from her temple turned him sick with rage. "'You devils!' he raved. "'Do you see what you have done?' but the play was over. Before he had finished his outcry, there was a shout of, the coppers, the coppers, and a rush and scurry and tumble of undignified retreat. The police force, with a band of anti-strikers behind them, had appeared upon the scene in the full glory of the uniform of the corporation, and such was the result of habit and the majesty of the law that those who were not taken into custody incontinently took to their heels and scattered in every direction, uttering curses loud and deep, 
since they were not yet prepared to resist an attack more formally. In half an hour, the trampled grass and flower beds and broken shrubs were the only signs of the tumult. Mr. French was walking up and down the dreary room in as nervous a condition as ever. "'Good heavens, Rachel,' he said. "'You must have been mad, mad!' She had persistently refused to lie down and sat in an easy chair, looking rather colorless and languid. When they were left alone, Murdoch came and stood near her. He was paler than she, and haggard and worn. Before she knew what he was about to do, he fell upon his knees and covered her hands with kisses. "'If any harm had come to you,' he cried, "'if any harm had come to you!' She tried to drag her hands away with an angry face, but he clung to them. And then, quite suddenly, all her resistance ceased, and her eyes fixed themselves upon him, as if with a kind of dread. End of chapter 34